Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, I'm Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Hey, I'm Steph Sovendahl. And yes, we're related to marriage. Thanks for tuning in. This is our second podcast. So we were just sitting here before we started lamenting about our ability to perform podcasts. So Thanks for bearing with us. If you've heard the first podcast and you're back for more, if this is your first podcast, welcome. Yeah, welcome. welcome and bear with podcast. us. Still. And bear with us still. We're still <laughs> figuring, figuring it out. out. We're doing five minutes a day on podcasts. Greatness. So it's a work this in our process. First five minutes. <laughs> yeah, this is our first five minutes. So. Work in progress. I should give you some framework here. I talked about match on a fire, medicine, and more. What that was in essence, and what we're trying to do is not only you know provoke some thought on the profession of medicine, emergency medicine, and EMS but then also give some clinical knowledge base. For those of you who are tuning in and just want the clinical piece, that will come. We promise we're going to get into the nitty gritty. I think our next podcast is going to be on shock. So hold tight for that. But we needed to set up a framework because this is really how we think. That first lecture or first podcast that we gave that was on being being great great in five minutes a day, I mean, that is really how I live. I, I try to do that every day. I'm not perfect. I fail on the five minutes, which shows that I'm really weak you know, all the time, but I really try to do that. And Steph tries to do that as well. This podcast is about how we approach a patient and kind of how I frame it in my head. When we do emergency medicine or EMS, you know, it can get really hectic. It can get really crazy. And you need a way to calm your brain so that you can think through the problem. I mean, this is really work the problem, you know, when things are out of control. So that's the framework of this talk. Once we get through this podcast, then we'll get you into some more clinical stuff, which hopefully you can hang out for. We're going to dabble a bit with clinical in this one, but it It won't be much. That last podcast, we talked about 300 seconds a day, five minutes being great. And the 300 and the number three is a theme for me, meaning that I'm always trying to framework in the threes because I feel like it's a really doable number. So when you have overwhelming amount of information to keep track of when you're studying, if you really focus on three things at a time, you can kind of program that into your brain. So that's why you'll get a theme here that we keep coming back to three. My dad was a mathematician, which is kind of unfortunate when you're growing up. Because there's never a bigger half of birthday cake. If it's a half, it's just a half. There's not a bigger, bigger half. half. But his favorite that's number rough. is pi. You know, when you say pick a number between one and 10 and he says pi, you know, that's rough for a seven-year-old. Your child, <laughs> I thought was perfect. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's why I always things. maybe come back to the number three. So we're going to focus on the number three here. In my opinion, there are three big pillars that you need to be good at to do this job. And I'll name them off and then we'll go through each one kind of individually. So the first pillar is clinical knowledge. You need a clinical knowledge base in order to do this job. The second pillar is technical skills. And then the third pillar is situational control. If you do not have one of those three, then you are not going to be a good EMT, paramedic, or ER doctor. Like it's not going to work for you. So you need all three of these and they're all... You can have have one that's more of a strength than the other, but you still have to have all three, right? Right. Absolutely. But if you're zero in any of these departments, it's going to be rough. From getting a better standpoint, you need to be self-aware of this. Like, what am I really good at? I'm super book smart. Say, you know, a person might say, I I kill tests. I do great on tests. But then when I get into these scenarios or I get in real life, I flail a little bit. You know, you need to work on the You got to know your limits. Clinical situation. You got to respect your limits, right? You got to say, I know that's a limitation of mine. Yeah. I'm going to respect that. And I'm going to work towards that one. Five minutes a day on that one. Five minutes. So three things, three pillars, clinical knowledge, technical skills, situational control. So what are we kind of talking about with each of these? 
the first pillar, clinical knowledge. That means that you just need to have the book smarts. You need to say, do I know an acute MI? Do I know what a, an inferior MI is? Do I know what an anterior MI is? Do I know what right-sided MI is? You know, like if I say these things, can I actually recite to you what they mean? That's, that's clinical knowledge base. That means that you read that in a book, you went to a lecture, and you kind of programmed it in your brain that you have that to information. Steph, give me an example of something recently that you thought of from the clinical knowledge base side that you needed to work on. Well, I have to say, I don't know if you know this about me, but in uh, paramedic school, I was the only one in my class to get 100% on pharmacology exam. That should blow your mind right now. Wow. Way, clinical to, knowledge. way to toot your own yeah. horn. Good job. Toot, toot. Okay, so Steph has nothing on clinical nothing. knowledge. <laughs> no, I just, I don't know if you know that fact. I'm just trying to. Uh, I didn't know that. That's I'm a, trying that's to um, buffer myself up in this clinical knowledge area because that's not my area of expertise. So clinical knowledge. One thing that just happened recently to me is those fancy LVAD devices. Had a patient with one of those. Not sure at all what to do with that. Uh, luckily, they I was able to manage them to the ER, but uh, quickly after that, we did. I did a reach out, a phone a friend option to um, a company that came out and gave us a presentation on LVAD. So you can find so much online about them, but it was really nice. Uh, we had a company come out and do a presentation. So that definitely made me feel like I was in a bit of a pickle with with my lack of clinical knowledge as, as far as how to handle those. And for sure, there's no way that we all know, you know, everything. And I always comment on this too, that, that like the ER doc, you know, we're like the bastard children in residency because we just go to all these different specialties and we try to learn as much as we can. And then we go back in the ER, right? And someone walks in the door and we're supposed to take care of whatever it might be. And then the cardiologist comes in and he looks at you like, ah, you idiot. Like, why didn't you just do X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, mm -hmm. because I was worried about the baby that was being delivered. You know, that's and, how paramedics feel when we yeah, bring exactly. them to the ER doc. It's all the same, they right? And so like for EMT or a paramedic or an ER doc, like I always say, we have to be 90% good at what the specialist is. Meaning that I'm 90% good at what, you know, at what a cardiologist can do. I get them these main things done and then I call them because I need some help. Like you're the specialist, help me out here. That just, again, you know, says that, I never have enough clinical knowledge, meaning could I, I can always learn more about whatever the subject was that I'm talking about. So that's just really podcast, book smarts. Hopefully what we'll give you in the next lectures coming forward, some more clinical knowledge. The second pillar of stuff you need to be good at is technical skills. And technical skills is actually being able to do your job, meaning can I innovate a patient? Do I know how to manually utilize these tools to put this airway in? Can I start an IV on anybody? Do I know how to deal with a kid You know, when I got to place an IO? Do I not know how to do a humeral IO? Do I know how to do a tibial IO? Like, do I need know how to do both, right? And that's what the technical skill is, is that I can actually perform that task. Yep. I mean, Steph, you're, you're big on this because you do huge educations on this for our city. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll hand I probably you, make half of it up. But I'll hand yes, you the dull pencil right now so you can yeah. poke your eye out <laughs> trying to teach you know, everybody how to do skills. But you know, it's, it's one of the <laughs> no, key components, so, it's right? It's huge because you want that to be something that you're mastering in a classroom so that when you have the chaotic situation, the patient screaming at you, all these extra factors that you're not having in that classroom, you want to like just beat this repetition into them in the classroom. So they get in those scenarios and are like, I can still just do this skill while dealing with the 10 other things going on around you. So, so I'm big on repetition in a classroom. And I think that speaks sure. to being efficient with your training. You know, I, I go to a lot of trainings the majority of people are like, I really don't want to be here. Like, why do I have to do this innovation again? Or why am I doing an IO again? I know how to do it. Like, that's the attitude they have. And man, my thing is, is you have some allotted time here to work on this skill set. 
So work on the skill set to whatever level you're at. So, you know, when you say, hey, I can innovate, you take the mannequin head, you throw your learner scope in, you put the ET tube in, you're like, I'm done. That is way different than me saying, man, how does the bulb work on my laryngoscope? How does that interface with a camera if I'm using a video laryngoscope? Mm -hmm. What is my depth perception view on that? Let me just play around with it. Let me see how I can mess up the balloon on my ET tube. What size ET tube fits over a bougie? Like all of these things that I'm saying are things that you can do when you're in a skills fair and you're like, I've done this before, Yeah. right? You just focus on all the nitty gritty. So you're like, I really know my equipment inside and, and out. Stump the stump the instructor. Yeah. Like ask so many questions that that in instructor gets stumped. I've had that happen, unfortunately, a fair amount of times where they'll ask me something too because we get so in depth on a item that hey, I don't you know what? As the instructor, I thought I had this stuff mastered. You just asked me something I don't know. Someone asked me the other day, how deep do you need to insert the bougie? Why aren't there any measuring lines on the bougie, etc questions like that come up. Right. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm not a huge bougie user, which I should be, yeah, you uh, should be. <laughs> which that's a whole nother conversation. But I have, um, I have a patent on a bougie that I love the bougie so much, but no one uses it. So shit. I, I wish that Steph would patent. some would somewhat be a big proponent of that bougie. No, but. I see the value in it for sure. I see the value. And, uh, but I, you know, that was never a tool in my toolbox for a long time. I, I definitely see the value in it. But the point of the story is, it's literally take that time to like get to the point where you're trying to actually stump the instructor because we do. I've actually had a feedback from an ACLS or PALS course that I taught where they said, can we just stick to the videos and get out? Because I took so much time to go just through all the repetition and skills and course. I mean, that, that just is them but, not trying to be great. You know, like, what, well, but that's what I'm saying. Just you, going should, through the you should be the one that like, you know, take that time. Like I said, master it in that environment, man, because we go into some other environments that are just not so hunky dory. Yeah. I mean, you want to have that stuff down, Pat, so you're, yeah. you're not using but a dude, lot of I mean, just say, I'm going to try to like, I'm going to try to make the instructor think or stump the instructor on that. So. so that was the second pillar, which was technical skills. And the third pillar Mastery. is situational control. And this oftentimes is the most difficult. I feel like this takes the most seasoned medic or ER doctor to control this because you can get your, your clinical knowledge base. You can get your technical skills down, but man, scenes can just be such a clusterfuck. Like when they are bad that you have to be able to really feel comfortable with your clinical knowledge base. You have to feel comfortable with your technical skills so that you can use a huge amount of energy to just control the situation. And when everyone sees that you're competent in those first two, it actually does calm the situation down a little bit for your situational control because people are like, oh, they, they know what they're doing. They, they kind of got this under control. I know that you've told me a lot of stories of bad situations <laughs> that you've been in because I'm married to you and uh, you, you come <laughs> you're home, my vent. you know, and you talk a lot That's more than I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Give an example of a, a, a crazy situational control that sticks out in your mind. Oh man, once again, got a lot of these ones where you just learn, you roll with the punches, you learn, you know, one, you know, definitely a season in my life that comes to, to my mind is the role I played as an engineer and paramedic because... <laughs> I had a lot of stuff on scenes where those, you know, I had multiple things being thrown at me. I feel like when I had started that profession, I had had a lot of years as a paramedic under me, but not a lot of years as being in the fire service. So and I, I should point out that it was, it was interesting that at Steph's department that she was working at that she's referring to, they had this unique situation where the paramedic on the engine was the engineer on the engine. So which some de some departments yeah, but, do that model, but it creates obviously. Imagine rolling up on a, a car accident where someone <laughs> yeah. is having CPR in progress, which you've had, right? You're, you need to mine the engine because you're the engineer. You need to park it. You need to make it safe. 
But then you're expected to go be the paramedic for the CPR in progress. So that season, I like comes to my mind a lot with this situational control because I had felt strong in that area as far as a paramedic. But then I got the curveball of, well, now you're the engineer. So I remember one of the first big calls I got in that dual role was a head on collision with multiple ejections and both vehicles that were involved were on fire. So here I am trying to be the engineer, but I'm also the only ALS provider to help with the you got to pump water people, and so. pump epinephrine. You got to do both. It's just like <laughs> pumping all day. <laughs> but no, so for sure, the reality now of that type of situational control of I'm going to set my pump and then I'm going to leave it, essentially, hope I did it right to go practice medicine, was a season where that, that got thrown, thrown off for me. I always think about the situational control. I actually go back to cycling and sorry you get these stories, but you know, when you're in a grand tour, or you're in like the Tour de France and you're riding. So I'm in the team car, you know, and the dock often sits in the front passenger seat. You would come over these, these summits of uh, a mountain pass, you know, in the Alps and everyone has just raced up the summit. And now everyone wants food, water, clothes, because it's raining or snowing at the top of the Alps and they need to get that through the cars. And if you ever watch this on TV, uh, even if you're not a cyclist fan, it's something to see because there's you know, all these cyclists over the top. And then there's a gazillion cars and everyone's going like 65 miles an hour. And the cyclists are coming to the cars to get this gear. And they're riding with no hands in these cars going down the Alps at 60 miles an hour. Right. And I always think that those riders have such situational control. Like they can control their bike. They know exactly which direction cars move because cars do move in a certain pattern to avoid everyone from getting hit. Cars know that they're supposed to slide to the right and slide back and the other car moves forward and the rider always comes to the left side of the car. Like all of these things are situational control. They are professional cyclists. Mm-hmm. Like people cannot do this if you're not a professional cyclist. Yeah. Like there's not a reason the that they're in the Tour de France, right? With and, clothes and, and I always look at no, them and say, really you know, how do I apply that level of skill to my ER? Say, you know, how do I control that ER room? We had a ER doc who, who got shot and it was obviously hectic, you know, on the scene for the paramedics. And then it was hectic in the ER because we know this guy, like he works with us, right? So when he rolls into the ER, it just adds an extra level of stress to everybody because you're like, oh my gosh, you know, we're dealing with this situation. And, and that really points out that that's a high level of situational control that you need to be able to control the situation. And I want to remind people, you bring up this, that cyclists are professional. This job, EMS, is a profession. And so we should be professional with it. There's a story that came up where when we were teaching some pediatric stuff, I had heard one of the medics didn't know there was a resuscitation side to Braslow. And that kind of stuff drives me crazy. A, they don't know that tool well. B, there's one dose of epi you got to memorize in your head. So just please remember, you know, this is a profession. There are a few things that we need to just master in this. Yeah, so take pride, take pride take in your pride profession. In this. Yeah. Like we got to know that stuff. Sorry. So we, we talked about the three uh, pillars that you need to know, clinical knowledge base, technical skills, and situational control. And now we'll move to like what I like to think of as avenues to treat your patient. So there are three avenues to treat your patient, and you're going to apply those three technical skills to these avenues. So the first avenue is diagnosing the problem. And think of this as a road. Like I'm going down a road with my patient, and over time, I'm going to keep on diagnosing what problem they have. The second road that I need to get on is treating the problem. So after I've made a diagnosis of the problem. I'm going to move on to the avenue of treating the problem. And then there's a third road that I need to hop on, which is treating the symptoms, like make the patient feel better, right? So we are trying to diagnose what's wrong with them, treat what's wrong with them, but then we're compassionate people. So I want to make them feel better with whatever is going on with them. I try to frame this when I have a patient and then I'm hopping on these three roads and it helps keep things in perspective and it keeps my mind on track on the next task that I need to do. 
So if we evaluate this and, and think about what does that mean? I have a patient, say she's a 55-year-old female with chest pain, right? What do I need to do to get on that first road to diagnose the problem? You know, out there, you're probably saying, what do you want to do, Steph? Mona. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that's a winner for most people. <laughs> yeah, no, obviously what I want to do is talk to my patient. That's okay. So you talk one. to her, so talk diagnose to her. the problem. What, what do you need? We, we're going to talk to her. Please, you guys, just in general, don't forget to talk to your patients. A lot of people just get into this. I got it. I got to do. So talk to them. But of course, we're going to, with chest pain, take a look. Take a look at that heart. Let's start ruling out cardiac. So although she said Mona, she probably means she wants an EKG. That's right my up monitor. Yeah, right up That's right the M in Mona. Oh, she just calls it monitor. I got it. No, Mona, monitor, oxygen, nitro, aspirin. She, you she, don't know that one? She changes up mnemonics at will. So just be ready when she's teaching. Bowl. Everyone out there knows Mona. <laughs> Let's go. So diagnosing the problem, getting an EKG. That's part of your pathway to diagnose the problem. So let's say I get this EKG and I see ST elevation in the inferior leaves, two, three in AVF, right? ST elevation. So I've helped just diagnose the problem with my EKG. This patient is having cardiac event, cardiac event, an inferior MI. All right. So I know that, that based on my EKG with this elevation, that is my working diagnosis at this point. So now I'm going to hop on the treatment pathway. What is the first thing on my treatment pathway for an inferior wall MI? I'm going to go with aspirin. Aspirin. Why are you going to go with aspirin? Because it's amazing. I mean, aspirin is amazing. Aspirin's amazing. Right. So yeah. if you invented aspirin today, it would probably cost the same as like Lytics. It would probably be like $1,000 a dose. A pill. Yeah. Because yeah, it works gold. so well. So if it's you look gold. at the studies There's on no aspirin, right, aspirin decreases mortality. And our whole goal with everything that we do is to take a patient from whatever their condition is to get home to their family. We don't high five because we make it to the hospital or high five because we make it to the OR. We high five because they go home and have a functional life after we take care of them, right? So aspirin saves lives, man. It totally works. So when I have someone with an MI, give them an aspirin, man. That's, that's high up on the list, right? Or four of them, four baby ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had diagnosed the problem avenue. We got an EKG. We diagnosed the inferior wall MI. We're going to treat the problem. We gave them aspirin. And now we're going to treat the symptoms. So our patient is you know, in a lot of pain. How can we make them feel better with pain? There's a debate on that. I would go with pain management. I would go with probably fentanyl. A lot of debate though. It could be fentanyl. It could be morphine. Some people think they give nitrates for pain reduction. Yep. All those things are, are good things to think about, right? We can give straight pain medicine. The patient's in pain. Let's give them some pain medicine. Hopefully if we give them an aspirin and they start to open up their flow to their heart because you gave them an aspirin, they'll start to feel better, right? So that might be on the making feel better pathway as well. Or we can give them some narcotics. We can consider nitroglycerin. Again, for nitroglycerin, there is a downside to giving nitroglycerin. Especially in this inferior wall, right? right? So an inferior wall MI, give nitroglycerin. I have the potential to drop their pressure. If I drop their pressure and mess up perfusion, now I'm not really doing my job. So again, when I look at what treatment options there are, there are different medicines and they have different you know, effects on the patient and they also can cause harm on the patient, right? So my first goal is do no harm. My next goal is to improve the situation. So I kind of look at what I need to do with the various medications. If I have an inferior wall MI, I'm certainly trepidatious about giving nitroglycerin because I could potentially have right side involvement with that MI, right? So if I had right side involvement and I give them preload nitroglycerin, dependent. drop their preload. Obviously, everyone knows this. This is like the standard interview uh, question. question. <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you do this? But again, keep that in mind. We're going to diagnose their problem, EKG, treat their problem. We gave an aspirin, and then we're going to treat their symptoms. And again, this one is the one I have to be most, most careful with because 
I don't want to cause them any harm when I'm just trying to make them feel better. Another example of this would be now we have a 23-year-old patient that has chest pain, same as the first patient, right? And they're screaming that their pain is so bad, it's worse when they take a deep breath. So we jump on that first pathway. What do we want to do? 23-year-old with severe chest pain. We are also going to do an EKG Sweet. So on we our get a, 23-year-old. So we get an EKG on that patient and they have, say, diffuse ST elevation on that. And they have a little bit of depression, PR depression. Mm-hmm. So if they have inferior involvement and lateral involvement and Everywhere. interior involvement, what are you thinking? I think when I see that pericarditis. Yeah. So either they're having the most unfortunate day ever and they're blocking multiple vessels at the same Super time, right? Vision. More likely they're having this kind of diffuse pattern with PR depression. Hey, we're thinking that this might be pericarditis. Again, this is just for example's sake, so don't get all technical on us and be like, you don't know. You never know for sure. That's all true. But from an avenue standpoint, we just got on the diagnostic avenue. We did an EKG. We saw a different result than our first diagnostic avenue. And now we're going to treat the problem. So what do we treat pericarditis with? Some kind of prescription from you. (laughs) Yeah. So what we (laughs) like to use is a fancy prescription. It's called Motrin. Motrin ibuprofen works really well for pericarditis. So when we have someone who has pericarditis, we give them ibuprofen, right? They get ibuprofen that helps with their inflammatory process that's going on. So it makes them feel better. If we're going to treat their symptoms, I have a pericarditis. I diagnosed the problem with the NKG. I treated their problem with ibuprofen. Now I'm going to treat their symptoms. What can I use? The way that you treat their symptoms with pericarditis is you can also give them ibuprofen. I actually looked at Steph to prompt that answer. And she looked at me, she's like, what's the question? She was not paying attention to the I, podcast. That's our, that is our level of uh, commitment, commitment to you here. guys. No, she's I'm checking fully, her I'm, iPhone. I'm full send. <laughs> she's I'm checking her send. watch to I make am, sure the kids no, don't no, need no, her. No, I got something. So we diagnose the problem, pericarditis with an EKG. We treat the problem, ibuprofen. We treat the symptoms. In this case, happens to be the exact same thing that treats the problem. So ibuprofen makes them feel better. It also treats their pericarditis. So we get both. When you think about, it might sound simple when you kind of think about the pillars of treatment and the avenues. But really what this works well in is when things start to get out of control. So I'm in the ER, I might have too many patients to take care of. I have a couple sick patients. I have one that's intubated, trying to set the vent settings. Someone calls me at the critical lab. Another consultant calls me on the phone. All this stuff is happening while I'm sitting at my computer trying to deal with Epic and put in you know, my charting. So I can easily get overwhelmed. And what I need to do is keep stepping back and reminding myself that I need to keep working the problem. The way that I work the problem is to stay on these avenues. What is my next step in diagnosing the problem? What have I not done that I need to do to diagnose the problem on my patient? Once I have any information on what the diagnosis might be, I need to treat treat that condition, right? I need to treat the heart attack. I need to treat the PE. I need to treat whatever it is that I'm finding. And then the last thing is I want to be compassionate and I want to try to make them feel better. So I want to treat their symptoms. And I need to be on these avenues, utilizing my pillars, my clinical knowledge base, my technical skills, and my situational control to get the best outcome for my patients. And so as we move forward with these podcasts, you know, we've given you a little bit of framework, meaning we want you to try to be great at your job five minutes a day. In that, we want you to focus on various- good at three things. Yeah, three things you need to be good at. You need to be good at clinical knowledge. You need to be good at technical skills, and you need to be good at situational control. And then when you have complicated patients, you need to keep on using all of those things to jump on these pathways, these avenues, diagnose the problem, treat the problem, treat the symptoms, and kind of bridging them apart in your brain that way gives you pause. It gives you a moment to think and focus on the problem. It calms out all the extra information that's happening. 
And this happens for all of us, whether you're an EMT paramedic, you know, first responder or ER doctor, we're always kind of distracted by all the things around us, like our iPhones and our <laughs> watches. That's a jab at me right now, everyone. Just so you know, that's a jab at me. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this podcast. Next one, we'll get into some clinical knowledge base here. Thanks, everyone. See ya. See ya. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine, and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening. Thank you.